Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Unleashing the Beast. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed. Your host, Mark Morano, here. All right. Well, we have an update to the update to the breaking news alert yesterday about breathing. Uh, the study that says breathing contributes to global warming. Well, that was, I wanted to get the story out yesterday. And now I have part two of this truly, truly seminal study in global warming. I mean, because this is they're just taking the mask off, so to speak, uh, or they're putting the mask on tighter to restrict your breathing, so to speak. But they're taking the mask off on just how humans are the target, not just human activity or human behavior, but actual humans and the number of humans. The same study, and now the rest can be told, it dissected breathing's climate impact. And by the way, I'm looking at my thing. I have breathing's apostrophe S. I believe that's correct. Or should it be S apostrophe? I need a wordsmith out there. My Grammarly uh, app didn't catch it. So I assume it's breathing's, but maybe I should put the climate impact of breathing instead of breathing's in climate impact. Anyway, study dissects cl breathing's climate impact by race and gender. Now, this is the same study as yesterday that essentially uh, humans contribute, human respiration has a net warming effect on the atmosphere. That's an exact quote from the paper, and it contributes to global warming. So it's not like, well, this is a theoretical paper and I'm making them out. No, they're saying that we have a, con a net contribution to the warming of the atmosphere. But here's where it gets interesting. The paper claims African populations are more likely to warm the earth than Asian populations, and women warm the planet more than men. Now, fascinating right there. Let me just go a little bit deeper into what they're actually saying here. Um, first of all, they're saying humans contribute to global warming by exhaling greenhouse gases like methane, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide at 16 times per minute. So, I guess they've calculated that we breathe in and we exhale uh, 16 times a minute. So think about that. Every minute you are killing the planet, you're killing grandma, you're destroying your children, your grandchildren's future. And you can't dispute that because the science says so. I need like a, I need an echo effect and the camera should zoom out or zoom in real close when I say the science says so. Okay, so the actual quote from the paper about reporting Africans are more likely to warm the earth. Uh, now, that it's beyond just breath. I should also mention that. This is the other thing. It's also your burps. And we're also dealing with what they're calling um, the flat or flatulence. So it's coming out the other end. And the same concern over cow uh, meat eating and any kind of animal livestock as the, the farting and belching of these animals contribute to global warming, so they say, with methane. And of course, I've already pointed out Dr. Will Happer, who was on earlier this week on my show Unleashed, or I guess last week, pointed out that you know methane is the irrelevant greenhouse gas. It doesn't have the, anything like the warming effect that they're claiming. And the idea of trying to limit methane because of greenhouse gas concern is just not making any scientific sense. Africans are more more are reported more likely to warm the earth with their breath and burps than any other ethnic group. Women 
are uh, are, are more likely than men with uh, to be methane producers. So that's what they're calling it. They're called MPs or methane producers. And this could be, again, from belching and from the bottom end, flatulence. This is the actual quote from the study. Quote, it has been reported in previous studies that region of birth or ethnicity is a strong indicator of the likelihood to be an MP with African populations much more likely to be a methane producer than Asian populations. This is also direct quotes from the study. The results reported in this study are consistent with the previous studies that found a higher percentage of methane producers in females when compared to males. Now, What's interesting is women warm the earth more than men, according to this study, with their breath and the, uh, shall we say, the indiscreet other end of uh, release of methane. It goes directly at odds with the findings of my interview in 2005 with an activist at the UN Climate Summit in Montreal, Canada. And yes, it was in December in Montreal, brutally cold, snow. I do recall, though, that this was before the... Uh, smoking bans. And I was able to find an indoor restaurant uh, that you could actually go smoke in. This is 2005. So I remember warming up to a nice cigar in the cold snow uh, and writing up these reports I was doing back then. Uh, at the time, I was doing it for C Cybercast News Service as an investigative reporter. It was my second UN climate summit that I had attended at that point. I've now been to 18 out of the last 20. Don't ask me why. This lady reported that men heat the globe, women feel the brunt. Uh, it's kind of like the old Sally, Jesse, Raphael, uh, or those old you know TV shows like Jerry Springer, men who warm the planet and the women who love them. That's what we're dealing with here. Uh, but this was the exact opposite because now the, the science, the science has spoken. Women are have a higher warming ratio with the methane producer than men. So maybe it evens out. And the idea of 2005 with this study uh, her name was Ulrike, and you can find this. I have it at Climate Depot about men warm the globe, women feel the impact. Was the idea is that men build things, men create the wars, men build the society, men uh, are the biggest carbon footprint compared to women. Uh, and this is what they're basically saying, that men have created a climate catastrophe and women and children will suffer. It's just all that, just the same old regurgitating crap. Anyway. Just stop breathing. So that's what I wanted to point out. So they've now gone into dissecting human breath. Africans warm the planet more than Asians. Women warm the planet more than men. There's probably a lot of jokes. You could go and a lot of politically incorrect things you could say. I'm not, I'm not going to go there today, uh, but I just thought you would enjoy that. All right. Uh, I barely made it to the studio today, by the way. I went to the bank and the machine ate my card. And then I went in, parked my car, went in, and they said, oh, that happens about one person a week. So I got the bad luck of the draw here on my way to the TNT radio studio here in Washington, D.C. And then I went out to my 2007 Jeep with 201,000 miles and completely dead when I went to restart it. And there I was with about 25 minutes to go, and I wasn't very far away. So I had to call an Uber, lock up my car, the window's still open. I hope it doesn't rain tonight. It's kind of cold here. I don't think it's going to snow. Uh, but I had to rush here in an Uber, made it to the studio on time. And uh, so we'll, we'll see how this goes with the car and I'll, I'll get all that fixed. But uh, just luck of the draw, two, boom, boom, right? Two in a row. Uh, and I did a show this morning all about EVs and EV mandates. And one of the things I said, my Jeep is a, is a stick shift, manual transmission. I will never buy an EV unless I can buy 
a manual transmission stick shift. Now it's getting harder and harder to even find gas powered cars, uh, manual transmission, but EVs, there's no way they can do it. Now there are ways, I've actually talked to some EV engineers about this. I think I was at the auto show in Washington DC last year. And they were explaining that there's a way you could simulate sort of a fake manual transmission where you'd have like a fake clutch, a stick shift, and you could even have simulated uh, sounds of, uh, you know, engine sounds of revving and shifting. There's, there's a way you could do sort of like a video game version when you drive to trick your brain, kind of like vaping tricks your brain that you're smoking. And anyway, um, anyway, okay. So I was going to, uh, I was, anyway, talking about, about EVs and the amazing thing that's happening now with EVs is the Biden administration here is hitting a wall that Europe is hitting a wall. All the gas powered car bans are hitting a wall. Finally, the auto industry is fighting back. And I'm gonna have a guest on as soon about that. I wanna just focus on the global auto industry and how China is poised to literally take over the global automaking if this EV insanity isn't stopped. And of course, in the US, I'm more optimistic because elections have consequences. We're still at the point where we can stop stuff, maybe because there's so much corporate government collusion in the deep state and bureaucracy and runs all this stuff. In Canada and Europe, I'm not sure you guys can even change anything. Australia, at this point, your sort of elections, do they really matter? It seems like no matter who you elect, and, and in Europe, Australia, you end up with the same policies. In other words, your leaders are sort of impotent, impotent and can't change anything. All right, well, I was gonna have a clip of me on Fox News with talking about the story, and I was gonna break the story that way, but I guess I will uh, instead, I will just break it through verbal it's telling you here, and I think you're going to enjoy this. There's a whole movement afoot, and this was written, uh, I think it was Wesley Smith from National Review who broke this, but Nature Rights is now making a huge gain in America, and CBS News is reporting on it, The New Yorker, and essentially, you're like, well, what's Nature Rights? It sounds like the same old, you know, green gobbledygook. Uh, it's a little different. This is granting legal personhood for land, rivers, trees, even inanimate objects, rocks, you name it. Humans are going to be reduced to the level of rocks, river, plant in the court proceedings. So I was on Fox and Friends the other day and I was explaining how this is a whole movement designed to take away human rights and to essentially, like the old animal rights movement, I interviewed, uh, not Fred Singer, Peter Singer, the bioethicist from Princeton in 2002 uh, at an animal rights conference and asked him a series of uh, you know questions about his whole movement of animal rights. He's a bioethicist. And he was basically saying your dog can consent to have sex with you, uh, that babies have no more right to life even up to eight months because they're not sentient essentially, or they're not able to distinguish, you know, mental capacity is not sufficient for them to have a right to life. And he he hearkened back, I guess, to the ancient Greeks who used to kill infants or decide if they could live after birth. Um, he's a real, you know, uh, out there. And he's also a surprisingly a climate alarmist as well. So Peter Singer, I, he hasn't been as big lately. He's still around. He's probably in his 80s. But, you know, Paul Ehrlich's still around, too. He's along the same vein. And Paul Ehrlich was anti-population. And and, Paul, and uh, Peter Singer was all about elevating animal rights. Well, that's sort of what this is, except now, instead of animal rights, nature rights. You see that pond, you see that lake, you see that beautiful rock formation, you see that tree, that has legal status in the courts. So you think, okay, well, how are they gonna speak for themselves? How do I, how does a tree sue me? 
to stop me from cutting it down? Well, that's where it gets tricky because it's not actually the tree that's suing you. It's the self-appointed, self-important, uh, and self-anointed activists who speak on behalf of the tree, who somehow commune with nature, understand what a river wants and how it doesn't want a dam or doesn't want a tree cut down, and they communicate those rights to the to the court system. So it's actually not the legal rights of trees and plants and rivers and rocks. It's actually the legal rights of these activists trying to come up with creative ways in the courts to get more and more of their agenda opposed through more and more crafty, wacky ways. So I went on Fox News and I and I explained to them that we all want a clean, healthy environment. But what they've done here is give voice to them, these, these, these inanimate objects that can't speak for themselves. And by the way, that's another debate I was having and looking up definitions. Is a river inanimate? There's life in it. Uh, you have to look at the definition. I think it definitely a rock would be. Uh, it depends. A tree is a living thing. Is it still inanimate? I think it's a non-living. It just depends on how you... Uh, you dial it out or how you parse it out. But what I explained is this is ultimately a way to crush development. So I, I may have mentioned this, but I want to may have mentioned this one aspect, but I have not mentioned this about a Kenyan biologist, which is what I want to go into here before uh, before you go to guess. By the way, we're bringing on Robert Zubrin, Robert Zubrin uh, who wrote the book on nuclear energy. We're going to talk about nuclear energy and solar and wind and fossil fuels and the, and how this whole thing, uh, you know, if you are concerned about global warming, where nuclear energy fits into this. And also RFK Jr., very anti-nuclear. I'm going to ask him about that because RFK is positioning himself as a uh, some sort of hero of the environment. It would seem to me that you would be embracing nuclear. So we'll ask Robert Zubin about that when he comes. Anyway, the Financial Times during the UN COP28 summit reported that white wealthy Western nations are buying up land in Africa. Up to 20% of the land is being bought up. And this is in places like Zambia, Tanzania, Kenya, Zimbabwe. 20% of their land mass being locked up by private companies, you know, in the same way that BlackRock is private, you know, corporate government collusion and uh, monopolistic power and massive amounts of money, buying up land and telling poor Africans they can't develop it ever. They're not, they don't own that land anymore. Gee, does that sound familiar? What could that be? Well, we know what it is. It's called colonialism, except a new form of colonialism, climate colonialism. And, it's the, and this is according to Financial Times, the looming land grab for carbon credits. Western carbon offsets look to take up a tenth of land in Liberia, a fifth of Zimbabwe's, and then Kenya, Zambia, Tanzania. And here's the key to this whole story. The Kenyan biologist, and I have this story posted up at Climate Depot, a Kenyan biologist by the name of uh, Mordiki Ogata, we'll call him Ogata, the Kenyan biologist, talks about this nature conservation as the new colonialism. And he actually says it bluntly, Africa is now a place for white elitists to enjoy as they lock up more and more land, not just through carbon offsets, not just through nature having legal personhood status, as I was mentioning, but also through the UN Climate Fund, which is paying their leaders in the infrastructure and all the uh, utilities and, and anyone they can get this money spread around to, to not develop. It will go to the leaders best able to keep poor Africans locked in poverty. But let's go back to this Kenyan biologist, uh, Mordecai Ogato, who told a German magazine, Geo. Uh, he says that, 
Europeans and Americans are using nature conservation, and again, legal personhood, carbon offsets, and UN Climate Fund, for self-promotion and have created nothing but failure in Africa. He refers to nature conservation scientists as prostitutes and NGOs, non-government organizations, as pirates. Environmental protection in Africa is above all a mendacious instrument of power for them. Wow, this is according to the Kenyan biologist. In his new book, uh, which, what the, did I give you the name of his book? It's called, uh, his new book is called New Colonialism, Africa, A Place for White, and I think, I believe that's what it's called, A New Colonialism. In his book, he has worked as a biologist for NGOs for more than 18 years in Africa and Kenya, compared nature conservation to apartheid because the projects are run by whites who make all the decisions and use black researchers as window dressing, adding, you suddenly realize the decisions are forced on you by people who are less qualified and often white. Now, this is the kind of identity politics I wanna read about. I want to hear about because this is the kind of identity, but you're going to call it identity politics. This is the kind that matters. And this is consequential. They are using the face of Africans to get their agenda across. And it has nothing to do with the benefit of Africans. So here's, this is the Ogata, the Kenyan biologist continuing. In Kenya, we arrest robbers, kidnappers, murderers, and bring them to justice. But we shoot poachers. Sometimes it happens that someone who is just walking through a protected area, uh, uh, walking through a protected area uh, gets shot because they have laws in Africa where you just shoot on sight a poacher. That's how sacred these animals are. So hold on. He uses the example of six poached gorillas at Virunga that made Western headlines in the, in the Western nations. But not the widespread, he says here, killing and raping of women and children at the same time. But the worst thing about it was the same time the Virunga was considered one of the world's worst rape scenes of women. Hundreds of women were raped every day, children were killed, and none of it made the news. But guess what did make the news the same time frame? The six dead gorillas. And he says, the Kenyan biologist, quote, that is so fundamentally wrong, unquote. He said that big nature conservation uh, organizations create a crisis to justify their work. Nature conservation is the only area where we reward failure. They have done nothing. They have done nothing or the wrong thing for 40 years, the biologist says. And he says nature conservation is a business and environmentalists are no angels, unquote. Wow. Can I get him? I, I need you to book uh, Ogata, the Kenyan biologist. I want him on this show. That is an incredible, incredible story, incredible truth, because I have a whole chapter in my book, Green Fraud, which I don't have a copy, I was gonna hold it up, on identity politics invading the environmental and climate debate. And it's a full, chock full, I don't know if he's in it, but it's chock full of examples of Leonardo DiCaprio presenting himself as the white savior and and turning away the uh, you know the the the, the local populations and in, in, in poor nations, it goes through how the environmentalists use black faces for PR events and that the real power behind the scenes includes none of the diversity you see in their brochures and ad or even at the podium. 
so it goes through all of those details. Anyway, uh, I really thought you'd enjoy it. Hopefully tomorrow I can maybe show you some of the clips uh, of Fox News because they include the CBS News clip talking about the nature rights. I think it would bring it more home. But I really wanted to do a deep dive into this because fascinating stuff. Kenyan biologist nails the fraud of the nature rights movement and preserving nature and how it's going to harm people and the, and the idea that the six dead gorillas blow away hundreds of women and children dead. Anyway, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT Radio. When we come back, Robert Zubrin, the author of The Case for Nukes, Nuclear Energy, not Nuclear War, but Nuclear Energy will join us and talk about how nuclear energy, though controversial, may be the solution. To those of you worried about man-made global warming, we'll be right back after these messages. TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. 13 Israeli hostages released uh, as part of that ceasefire deal uh, 49 days after they were taken hostage. 49 days. So that still leaves about 225 to 227 more hostages. Uh, I'm with John Bolton, the former national security advisor to Donald Trump. I'm with Britt Hume of, uh, of Fox News. I'm with a bunch of other people who say this gives Hamas too much time to do whatever they want to do, to do whatever they need to do, to regroup, to rearm, to re-strategize. And as much as you want the hostages back, it can't be at the expense of the other part of the mission, which which is to destroy Hamas. I think it's a mistake. Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. Take us back in time. And who was Mike Flynn? He was the national security advisor to the president. Why is it that they go after me so hard? Why me? Why does Barack Obama only talk about two people to the incoming president of the United States? When I was sentenced, the judge says, you have been convicted of lying to cover up for Donald Trump. To which I say, cover up what? Russian collusion? There was no Russian collusion to cover up. We see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations, that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's gonna protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. This moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism or you're talking about communism, socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism. But the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization and brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat, people will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. 
That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com So many people who had no history of heart illnesses have got it now or blood clotting after the COVID-19 vaccination. Punish those who hurt people with COVID madness. Lighting the fuse for freedom. TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, well, joining us now is renowned nuclear and aerospace engineer, Dr. Robert Zubrin, whose new book is The Case for Nukes, How We Can Beat Global Warming, Create a Free, Open, and Magnificent Future. Uh, thank you, and welcome to the program, Dr. Zubrin. Thank you for coming on, Robert. Well, thank you for inviting me. All right, uh, we just complete concluded the COP28 UN Climate Summit in Dubai, and they basically wanted to say we wanted to get a phase out fossil fuels and they ended up agreeing to transition away from fossil fuels. It kind of sounds, it sounds very, uh, you know, almost like a gender transition, but some kind of weird transition away. Did you follow that? How does the UN COP28, how did they handle nuclear at this conference? Because I was there, I didn't see any mention or anything going on with it. There was a lot of side events and a lot of other things. What's your understanding of how the UN is treating nuclear and how the net zero agenda treats nuclear as a whole? Okay, well, uh, there was one very small step in the right direction at COP28, and but mostly just bad stuff. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, The so to be clear, Okay, uh, and, and and I'll give some people who were there and uh, trying to do the right thing uh, that here they are. They're saying we gotta transition away from fossil fuels. Is a global warming emergency, etc. And there was uh, a vocal minority there who insisted that the transition technologies include nuclear. So that. Uh, is one small step for sanity. That is, if you actually believe that carbon emissions are an existential crisis threatening yeah. humanity, okay, you shouldn't be there saying, well, I don't know about what we do with the waste if you're saying the humanity is going to go extinct. Okay, so in a certain sense, the warmest oversold their case about the threat of warming, and they actually got some people who weren't in the tank for deindustrialization to believe that the warming is an existential threat. And so to satisfy them, they had to include nuclear within the list of alternative technologies to fossil fuels. However, that said, okay, they did not recommend any kind of program that would allow nuclear to happen at scale. Because the fundamental thing that has been blocking nuclear energy uh, in the United States and other advanced countries since the 1970s has been hostile overregulation, hyperregulation. Uh, that is, in the early 70s, we were actually getting an order for two new nuclear power plants a month. And had that been allowed to continue, we would have uh, decarbonized our electric power grid by about 1985-90. It would have been yeah, done as it was done in France. Okay. But the Carter administration sabotaged that by creating a hostile hyperregulation. And the time it took to build a nuclear power plant in the United States grew from three years to 16. It grew by a factor of five. And as I show in my book, by looking at the data, the cost of a nuclear power plant increases as the construction time squared. Okay, squared. Yeah. Uh, that is, has increased 25 times. And you see any 
technology can be made too costly to be economic if you regulate it into oblivion. If the FAA regulated airlines the way the NRC regulates nuclear power plants, there would be no airlines. Wow, that's a that's a great analogy. Okay, so what percent currently is U.S. Uh, energy from nuclear? I guess total energy. I guess you could say yeah. What our percentage? And how has that changed since, say, the 1970s? And what do you think the percent would have been had the yeah, essentially the Carter administration not turned that? What did you say? Three years to 18 years for approval. To 16, yes. Uh, to 16, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, nuclear power did grow. Uh, despite that, it grew from three percent okay. of our electricity in the early 70s to 20 percent okay. today, and that, by the way, matched a fall of oil, not oil in general, but oil for electric power generation was 20% in the early 70s, and it has now three. We don't really use oil for electric power except in Hawaii, um, because it's more expensive than other fossil fuels. Oil, of course, remains the premier fuel for transportation. It has unique qualities there. Um, but uh, nuclear actually did replace uh, oil for power generation, and which, by the way, was something that was feared by the oil companies at that time, following the uh, Arab oil embargo and the uh, oil price increased radically, they saw that they were vulnerable to nuclear. And both Exxon and Atlantic Richfield gave major grants to environmental groups to go after nuclear power. And that is when the Sierra Club, for example, which previously had been supportive in general of nuclear power because it was less polluting than fossil fuels, less smoke, all that. Okay, they turned on a dime and went after it. And if you look at the initial statement of the Sierra Club in 1974, when they justified their reversal on nuclear, they didn't say it was because of the danger of nuclear or of nuclear waste disposal. I'll come to that in a minute. They said it's because it could encourage unnecessary economic growth. Interesting. That was 1974 was the reason. Yes, it was. So, so you got to get the picture of the early 70s. Uh, yeah, that's when John Holdren was testifying about essentially degrowth and limiting uh, economic development and population. So the Sierra Club fell into that same mindset as the last yes. thing we want is oh. something that would humans would prosper with. We want to keep humans tightly so they'll they'll restrict their numbers. Right. In 1972, a very influential report was issued by an organization called the Club of Rome. Uh, yes. which included numerous very elite personalities, corporate presidents, European aristocrats, uh, and, and so forth. And uh, they said, look, and they had this computer, which was a, a novelty at this time, at MIT. And they said, we got the computer and we've done the calculation. We're using oil at this rate. This is the size of the reserves. It's all going to be used up by the year 2000. Copper will run out in 1999, zinc by 2002, so forth, because our computer can infallibly do long division. And that's when things are going to run out. And you can't argue with this because computers are always right. And the um, and this was trumpeted in the New York Times and all the influential media at the time. Uh, we have to stop economic growth and population growth, which, of course, leads to uh, increased uh, economic growth and uh, overall consumption as well. Uh, and this was pushed very hard. And they claimed that anybody who denied this was just some Neanderthal from the Chamber of Commerce who just wants yeah. to make money and is oblivious to the fact that if we all keep making money, everything's going to run out by the year 2000. OK, now this was challenged by an economist, a uh, very uh, good one named Julian Simon. 
uh, yes. who wrote an excellent book that I recommend to anyone who hasn't read it called The Ultimate Resource, um, in which is this is absolute nonsense. Okay, and and I'm willing to bet that the effective availability of resources will increase over this time period. And uh, Paul Ehrlich, who wrote a book called The Population Bomb, which was warning we we're going to run out of everything by about 1975. Back, Paul Ehrlich warned that we we're going to run out of oxygen by 1979. Okay, <laughs> the, 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 the okay, uh, I'm not kidding. You can check it. He, he was also are, he was also on the Tonight Show. Johnny Carson, 1980, said we'd run out of oil by 1990 within the next decade. Yeah, well, everyone, he said something like everyone it, knows it. Yeah, it always runs out in 10 years. Okay, yes. now whenever you are. Okay, so. He said, oh, well, okay, you want to bet? And Simon said, sure, I'll bet. So they named 10 uh, commodities, and I forget what the exact were, but there were things like oil, copper, zinc, and so forth. All the things that the Club of Rome said we were going to run out of. And the bet was that adjusted for inflation, these would be cheaper 10 years hence than they are now. And there was $100 on each of the 10 uh, resources. And both Ehrlich and uh, John Holdren, who was Ehrlich's uh, protege, uh, uh, not yeah, Ehrlich um, did this bet, and Simon won on all ten. Uh, he was ten for ten against them, and the reason is that the resources are defined by technology, and technology is advancing. There's much more oil available to every person today than there was in 1972, uh, and and vastly more than there was in 1859 when we first started drilling for oil. Okay, the, that that is. As the population has gone up, there's been more people, more inventors, more inventions uh, means more resources and inventions are cumulative. And furthermore, the more inventions there are, the more new inventions there can be because inventions, almost all inventions are combinations of previous inventions. You put a, a engine together yeah. with a bicycle, you got a motorcycle. And that's, you know, so once people invent engines and bicycles and somebody can invent a motorcycle. And uh, so that's how it is. So the, the, if you want to be an inventor, this is the best time you could have ever lived because there's so many things you have to work with. Um, and, and resources are expanding at a rapid rate. And by the way, as I show in my book, even oil and gas resources in the United States, our reserves of both of these things are much higher today than they were in 2003. Okay. That is, Despite a massive increase in our consumption of natural gas, our natural gas resource reserve, reserves have increased. In fact, and they've not only increased absolutely, they've increased in, uh, relative to population. Why? Because of fracking. Um, and yeah. as people increasingly see the possibilities of fracking, more and more things that previously were not resources have become resources. All right, well, you said some very- as a natural resource. There's only natural yeah. raw materials. It's invention that turns uh, materials into resources. Well, this is fascinating. So if the Sierra Club by 1974 is opposed to nuclear, sort of sheds light on what happens with the whole Three Mile Island scare and then the Jane Fonda, Jack Lemmon film, the China syndrome, how they would then seize on the real reason they opposed nuclear, which was they didn't want you know basically prospering humans to hey, let's go with some some fear porn and terrify the public. And I assume all the environmental groups jumped on that, the media. Tell us how the, the Three Mile Island and then the China syndrome capitalizing on that 
What impact did that have on public uh, public opinion and government regulations? And what impact should it have had? What actually happened at Three Mile Island? Because a lot of people still have an idea that there's three-headed fish swimming in Harrisburg or something like that. Okay. Well, Three Mile Island is the only mega disaster in human history in which not a single person was hurt. Um, I mean, really? Okay. Okay. Uh, more people were killed. Uh, well, name it. Anything that ever killed anyone, an auto accident, uh, you know, uh, falling off a ladder, uh, then were killed at Three Mile Island. Uh, no one was killed at Three Mile Island. No one received any threatening radiation dose at Three Mile Island. Now, a valuable nuclear power plant was destroyed, so there was a commercial loss. Okay, but beyond that, there was nothing bad that happened at Three Mile Island in reality. Now, though, to to get back to this, um, okay, look, nuclear power plants do have potential failure modes. Okay, they need to be cooled all the time. Because while you can turn off a nuclear power plant instantly, within literally microseconds, if you drop the control rods into it, the, uh, the neutrons fail to multiply to keep their numbers up, and they, well, milliseconds, they will disappear. They'll be extinct, and the reactor, no fission will happen anymore after that. But there's still some heat being generated, because if the reactor has been operating for any length of time, there will be... Uh, radio uh, uh, nucleides wastes, radioactive waste in the fuel pellets in the reactor. And these will be giving off some heat. In fact, the instant after you turn off a reactor that's been operating at, say, a thousand megawatts for a long time, the reaction, the power level will drop instantly from a thousand megawatts to 70 megawatts. Okay, it will drop to 7% of full power. And over the next few hours, it'll drop to about 1% of full power. Then over the next day, it'll drop to 0.1% and so forth. But for a number of hours after shutdown, there'll still be some substantial waste heat. And this is very well known, okay? It was always well known. And so you want to keep the water cooling it after it is shut down. Now, what happened was uh, the... Uh, okay, now if you don't, if you don't, then what will happen is it, the uncooled pellets will heat everything up and they will melt the fuel rods, which will fall to a, a, a mass at the bottom of the reactor. And then it was said that, well, now that hot radioactive mass of gunk will melt its way through the eight inch steel, uh, thick steel pressure vessel that contains the reactor. And then it will fall to the bottom of the containment building where there's an eight foot thick concrete uh, uh, floor, it'll melt through that, and it'll melt through the earth, and in fact, uh, contrary to physics, go not only to the bottom of the earth, but all the way up the other side to China, okay? And that yeah. um, is the China syndrome. Now, what happened was, at Three Mile Island, the, the reactor tripped, okay, so it was shut down, but then the reactor operators uh, actually panicked and even though the automatic safety systems to keep the pumps running switched on as they should have, the reactor operators turned them off. Interesting. Okay. So people make mistakes. They made a big one. So the reactor did melt down. However, had they not, well, just to be clear, had they not turned that down, it would not have melted down at all? No. Nothing would have happened. And they could have no, continued well, on. That would have been not destroyed, you're saying? No, if a few hours later, they would have turned the thing back on. Everything would have been. Wow. Destroyed. So this is a human error all the way. And you're yeah, saying they it, panicked. It wasn't bad training. It was just they panicked. They knew what to well, do. Clearly, there was inadequate training. Okay. Okay. All right. 
whatever it was, they did the wrong thing. They did exactly the wrong thing. It would have been better if they had taken the day off and let. <laughs> yeah, let autopilot take care of it. Yes, yeah, that's right. Okay, now, so, but here's what happened. The fuel rods did melt and they fell to the bottom and they hit the steel pressure vessel and they melted their way about an inch or two into the eight inch thick steel and there they stopped. They did not make it through the pressure vessel, let alone the containment building. Okay, now the reactor, so there was no substantial radionuclide release to the public. Okay, they, they had to vent a, a little bit of, of, of uh, radioiodine gas and, but the dose to the public was uh, less than if the people in that area, Pennsylvania, where they were, had decided to take a weekend trip to Colorado, uh, where right. I live, where because we're at higher altitude, the background radiation is a bit higher than it is at Pennsylvania. Now, that's how small the dose was. Okay, the, 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 it was it was equivalent to a weekend in Colorado, much less than a week long vacation in Colorado. Now, the um, which you might want to do because skiing's great right now. Anyway, uh, the uh, so it was all bullshit. Okay, to put the matter simply, uh, but it was hyped to the maximum. Now, the Carter administration was already at war with nuclear power before this happened. Okay. Why, the, the why was that though? Because they were steeped in the sort of Sierra Club ideology or they had other reasons? Why were well, they- Well, approach- actually uh, it was uh, deeper than that. They, they were massively infiltrated by the US Committee for the Club of Rome. Uh, and uh, in fact, the okay. Carter administration itself put out a report, which you might want to look up called uh, Global 2000. Um, and uh, in which they- projected the necessity of achieving zero economic growth in order so that we could have a sustainable uh, world in the year 2000. Um, and so that was their pro. No, no, they, they, they were, uh, the Club of Rome affiliates were uh, okay. staffing the Carter administration. Well, that's what and, I mean. So they were beholden by that ideology. Okay. That's- yeah. So, right. So, but they were closer to the source than, than just being from the, I mean, Sierra Club certainly had okay. people in the Carter administration too, but in fact, they were getting it from the same place the Sierra Club was getting it from. Okay. We have to take a break, but when you come back, I want to ask you then about the movie in Hollywood and how that impacted the public fear, because it seems like that's a huge barrier. And then of course, nuclear waste. And we'll, we'll get, we'll got this. We're talking with Robert Zubrin, the case for nukes, how to beat global warming and create a free, open, magnificent future. We'll be right back with this is Unleashed with Mark Morano. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. If by some unimaginable impossibility, you're still trying to determine whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, ask yourself the following questions. Did you favor the Baphomet statue being erected at the Iowa State Capitol? Did you enjoy the school board swearing in on a stack of child pornography books? Do you find nothing objectionable about a homosexual sex tape being recorded in a Senate hearing room and posted online? And finally, did you just love the transgender nutcracker down a hallway hideously decorated by Dr. Jill Biden for Christmas at the White House? If the answer to one or more of these questions is yes, you might be a Democrat. In fact, you're definitely a Democrat. As for the rest of us, if you doubted that, in the words of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, this next election is the choice between normal and crazy, wonder no more. Last week said it all. 
From aginstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee, and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widowmaker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. Mark Morano is unleashed, and he's taking on the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed. We're talking with a nuclear uh, engineer, uh, Dr. Robert Zubrin, whose new book is The Case for Nukes, How We Can Beat Global Warming and Create a Free, Open, Magnificent Future. Okay, Robert, we were just talking about you know, the regulatory state, the ideology of government officials. What impacted Hollywood and the public fear, especially following Harrisburg and then the Jane Fonda movie, have on future uh, nuclear power plants and nu- nuclear regulation? Well, certainly, uh, I mean, the the movie, The China Syndrome, uh, I believe fortuitously, I don't think this was a conspiracy, but it came out at exactly uh, practically right. the same time as Three Mile Island. And it was... Um, a well-done movie as viewed as theater uh, was compelling. Uh, it was a successful movie and it certainly helped amplify the message. Uh, but the real problem here, well, okay, it amplified the message. And look, Jane Fonder was, you know, a communist sympathizer. I, I don't know Jack Lemon. Uh, I haven't heard anything about him, but, the, 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 but look, you know, uh, I think Elon Musk made a mistake. I think instead of buying Twitter, he should have bought what a major Hollywood studio. And what we yeah. need are movies that um, uh, carry a, a, a positive message, uh, 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 you know, about the idea of progress. And uh, I mean, we had it to some degree. I mean, the original Star Trek was, you know, we can go out to the universe, there's problems, but we can deal with it, human ingenuity can overcome all things and so forth. But uh, I don't know if you can remember it, I think you're a little bit younger than me, because. but in the 60s, there was a great TV show called The Great Adventure. And it was an hour show every week, and it would have some great episode of American history, whether it was the Wright Brothers, or yes, Sojourner Truth, leading slaves to freedom, or, you know, uh, 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 you know, some other critical moment in American history and and people, Edison, people taking it on, overcoming the obstacles and 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 getting it and doing it. And frankly, I think we need a TV show and movies like that. Yeah, I mean, so that uh, it, would, it was an interesting concept of him buying a movie studio instead of Twitter. I don't know how happy he's going to be with Twitter in the end. It's, you know, <laughs> everything. Yeah, no, I, think, all the social- I think that was a waste. Because uh, yeah. Twitter's always going to be a madhouse. Exactly. Um, All right. Well, let me ask you. Let me. Here's what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Now, interesting. He claims he doesn't 
he doesn't care people he says climate change has been hijacked for totalitarian control by the world economic forum un and i guess the world health organization he also wants to ban fracking which i was shocked he tweeted that out you know meaning especially since he's worried about if you're worried about reducing emissions fracking and replacing coal has been one of the biggest things but here's what he had to say about nuclear and this was earlier this year he called nuclear energy, quote, the most expensive way to boil a pot of water that has ever been devised by humanity. So why would you want to have the most expensive solution when there are cheaper solutions, far cheaper solutions? How do you respond to that, that this is the most expensive way to boil a pot of water ever, and there are cheaper solutions than nuclear energy? He's still very anti-nuclear, RFK Jr. Well, uh, anything can be made expensive if you either tax it or regulate it right. in such a way <laughs> as to make it almost impossible to do. So this is for, for the environmentalist to say nuclear power is, is <laughs> too expensive. It's like saying uh, a, a kid who's murdered his parents to plead to the judge to let him off because he's an orphan. Uh, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of the Menendez brothers. Didn't they make that exact legal claim in court years ago in California and they killed their parents? I, I hey, believe go ahead. so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the poor orphans after they, anyway, go ahead. But yeah, that's a very, yeah, because you're saying it went from three years to 16 years. Is that, do I have that right? That's or, right. Of the regular Now it court? still yeah. takes only four years in South Korea and in China, okay, which is more relevant here. China, there is about right now 450 civilian nuclear power plants in the world operating. Uh, and uh, China intends to build another 400 inside of China between now and 2050 and export possibly another 400 or more to Africa and other places like this. United States invented nuclear power. We did the Manhattan Project. We did the Nautilus. We did the shipping port plant. We did Adams for Peace. Okay, we did it all. It This is American technology 100%. And yet we've quit the field and we're letting uh, uh, China take over this as a global market. It's uh, it's It's absolutely amazing just how this has come about. You're right. We did invent that. Um, when you're looking at nuclear now, what about the smaller, uh, I guess, modular, portable, I want to say portable, but smaller, the new technology? Are there ways that we can circumvent without a major change in regulatory policy or even public opinion? Is there a way for nuclear to morph through new technology to become in more increased part of our energy supply and also just technologically bypass some of these regulations? The Modular nuclear power plants are a good idea, uh, and they may be more adaptable to the current set of hostile regulations. However, the regulations can always be made more hostile. Uh, right, to, uh, to adapt is, to the new technology. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Okay. Uh, that is, okay, look, the modular plants have uh, a potential advantage, especially for uh, small and medium-sized electricity markets, uh, of which there are going to be many, especially in the developing sector, okay, is if you got a city that doesn't need 1,000 megawatts, only needs 3,000, uh, 300 megawatts, uh, then having something that fits that market, that's a useful product niche. And furthermore, if you are trying to address somebody that could use 600 megawatts or 900 megawatts having two or three of them will allow you to do it and uh while you don't have the same economy of scale that you have with a big reactor you do have the advantage of factory production that is it 
anything you do in a factory, well, for instance, let's say you want to do a weld, okay? The studies have shown that it takes eight times as long to do a weld at a construction site as it does in the factory. The factory, everything's set up, it's not going to rain, and, 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 and you know, the, the right guys are all there, and the supplies are right here, and, you know, you just do it. So, the the this is why they don't build automobiles at used car lots they build them at, at the auto plant okay so if we could make nukes that way uh essentially sort of a shipyard but like a world war ii shipyard where you're churning out liberty ships okay uh you got the same product and you turn out more and more of them and then you ship them and then the building of the plant uh becomes the, the it's not a construction project like building a hotel. It's more of a thing of assembling a number of pieces, hooking them together and go. That That's the thinking here. And there's some logic to it. Okay. So I'm all for the small modular reactors. And I'm also for, there's right now, there's a bit of an entrepreneurial revolution uh, of people attempting to develop more advanced types of nuclear reactors. Uh, the, the nuclear reactors that we're using today, over 90% of them are essentially modeled on the reactor that went into the Nautilus in 1954, Rickover, uh, built that reactor, the pressurized water reactor, uh, and they say, we can do better than that. Now, it is true we can do better than that. However, it is not true that the problem the nuclear industry has is that we're still using the Rickover reactor. The Rickover reactor is an excellent design. It works. OK, and uh, it's what's allowing France to be 75 percent nuclear and another 15 percent hydro. So they're 90 percent not carbon. OK, the 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 the, the, the they work. OK. Uh, and in fact, though, the regulations are making it harder to introduce a new type of nuclear reactor, because if you go to a utility and you say, wouldn't you like to have a better reactor than this? They say, well, shit. 95% of our cost is coming from the construction cost, which is being driven by regulation. You want me to go with a breeder reactor, okay, that can get 90% of the energy out of the fuel instead of 1% that a pressurized water reactor? Well, why? The fuel cost is only 5% of my cost. My real cost is the construction cost, and it's hard enough for me to get the NRC to permit a reactor that they've already permitted 400 copies of, okay, without going to something new. You can imagine what it would be to try to get them to permit something different than what they already have permitted uh, hundreds of copies of, okay? So no, so they don't wanna look at uh, improvements. But so you have this entrepreneurial revolution which promises to introduce uh, better reactors, um, uh, breeder reactors, uh, uh, um, thorium reactors, all sorts of things that people have talked about since frankly the 60s. Uh, they all got cut short because as soon as the hostile regulation came in, it's harder to get a new kind of reactor permitted than, uh, you know, the tried and true. Wow. All right. Well, so thank you very much. The fundamental issue here, the fundamental issue is if we really want to have nuclear energy playing a big role in our future, whether it's because you believe in existential global warming or you just want to have a cheaper form of energy yeah. that we're not dependent upon foreign supplies for and i mean really nuclear power could be much cheaper than fossil fuels okay the, 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 and it's unlimited in its supply so even if you don't believe all this the existential carbon crisis stuff you'd be should be for all nuclear right. power
Uh, well, thank you very much. We're out of time, but this is Robert Zubrin, his new book, The Case for Nukes, How We Can Beat Global Warming, Create a Free, Open, Magnificent Future. This is an important book, folks. Thank you for joining Unleashed with Mark Morano. See you tomorrow. All right. Thank you. Thank you.